If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Coming up on this week's show, the Game Boy Advance gets its first new commercial game in over a decade. Is Sega bringing back more classic games? And we go inside the world of RPGs with game designer Neil Halford. The Retro Owl Podcast is brought to you each week with our amazing mates at Bitmap Books. Now check out Super Famicom and Super Nintendo, a visual compendium, offering a visual snapshot into some of the best games, developers, box art and product design from across North America, Europe and Japan, over 500 pages dedicated to Nintendo's 16-bit wonder. You can check that out and lots more retro titles on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 291, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show, the show that takes you back to those long summer days, sitting indoors, playing your latest Super Nintendo games, maybe riding your BMX on a Saturday to spend your pocket money on a new Commodore 64 game, or unwrapping your PlayStation 1. A Christmas. Oh, amazing memories. And actually, this is our first show of September now. And that means only a couple of months until we're into that time of year again. The nights are getting darker, lots more time indoors to play games, which is always a good thing, I think. Heating's going on. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was about to say, you say that like I don't stay in all night playing games anyway. <laughs> it's just got a fan on this. Like, yeah, just, right now I have a fan on and then in a couple of months time I have the heating on. That's the only difference. You know what though, because normally around this time of year we're kind of getting over the um, the summer lull, you know, because normally mm. in video games summer's kind of a quiet time. But actually because the world's been so weird over the last year, it's actually felt like this year's been pretty jam-packed with, with news and new releases and that all throughout the year, to be honest. And um, that's kind of going to continue in this week's show. Loads of new stories to get through. And of course, an incredible guest like we bring you every Friday on this podcast. And this week, because um, you know this time of year when the nights get a bit darker and they're a bit longer and, you know, it generally, a lot of my memories are playing more in-depth games during the winter months. I mean, in the summer, it's always mates over, you know, doors and windows open, playing platform games. But I remember like going into like, you know, more RPGs and adventure games and that kind of thing during winter when you had a bit more time. Sat there on the couch with a blanket around you, just holding your little controller while you're <laughs> yeah. completely immersed into an RPG. You know what? I think, I think you're right, to be honest, because you just, you do play out more. I know I joke like, you know, oh, I play games all night and stuff. But when you're a kid, yeah, you're right. You do, you play mm. out and you go to each other's houses and stuff like that. Whereas in the winter, you kind of come home from school and, you know, you just stick the game on. And like you say, it gives you more of that opportunity to get into a more in-depth game. I, I play a lot of strategy, but kind of RPGs are also really good fun. I like RPGs and strategy kind of lend themselves to each other. You know, sometimes you you, you need a strategy when you're in battles and stuff like that. 
Well, this week we're going to be joined by Neil Halford, who um, was behind some incredible RPG and adventure-style games as well, including stuff like Planet's Edge, uh, Betrayal at Crondor, Dungeon Siege, and the Swords and Circuitry book as well. And kind of, I mean, you know, when we talk to people that um, are big in the RPG space, there tends to be a bit of a common theme that it all started with D&D. Yeah, it always seems to start with D&D. And, like, that's the basis of a lot of stuff. But um, this is a really interesting interview because we talk about companies that we've not really covered before so new world computing is one of them and uh, mm. he did planet's edge which was fantastic and dynamics now dynamics were actually owned by sierra and yeah. uh, there was a kind of a little battle between sierra and dynamics because um you know they were part of the sierra family but uh sierra had its own kind of thing going on with the adventure games so it's a bit of rpg versus adventure and uh also he worked on Dungeon Siege, which was an absolutely fantastic game by uh, Gas Powered Games. And, you know, Betrayal of Condor was, um, Betrayal at Condor was a fantastic game. It, was, it wasn't as successful as it initially should have been when it was kind of released, but then it, it got released as one of the first CD-ROM titles, and that seemed to really kick it off. And, uh, you know, having anything on CD-ROM, I think people would just buy it straight away, get into it. And, and that, that was a good way of giving kind of uh, the title a bit of second life and, you know, just uh, extending it a bit when it, it kind of got pushed away at the very beginning and, and, and now it's got like cult status and, uh, you know, Neil's amazing. He's, he's, he's a kindred spirit with mine. We're both uh, Star Trek fans. So, (laughs) <laughs> and Planet, Planet's Edge is is pretty much a Star Trek game, you know. Uh, it's it's really interesting to talk to him. Yeah, and he's got a really good background in storytelling as well because he did um like radio audio dramas, didn't he? He was doing those when he was young, um, which kind of gave him his start in you know telling stories. And obviously, you know, we said the D and D kind of background there as well. And also, we talk a lot about those um, old school Infocom text adventures you know like zork and hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy which you know i've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with that game really enjoyed it but the amount of times i want to punch my fist through my monitor <laughs> you always talk guide about how hard that game is <laughs> <laughs> As I say, i'm pretty unfair. sure it comes up every week either on the show or just in our group chat <laughs> like one of one of dan's big frustrations <laughs> <laughs> still still annoyed about it like 40 years later or whatever it is 35 years later well, well it's 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 a really good interview as well because he talks about, you know, like the modern game culture. It's kind of get this done by this deadline and stuff. And New Wheel Computing, they didn't have any deadlines. It was just get it done when it's done. And uh, it's kind of nice having that culture and, and that kind of vibe. Yes, I really enjoyed this week's guest, and I know that you will as well. Neil Halford is coming up on the show in around 25 minutes from now. Now, I did mention that it's been a busy week in terms of retro gaming and technology news. Why don't we jump straight in with a Sega story? Now, this one is quite curious. It looks like um, Sega could be remastering a couple of um, more obscure titles. Now, this is um, two Mega Drive games and a Saturn game that they've renewed the trademarks for. And this was spotted on um, Twitter. So they've actually linked up. These games were trademarked again in Japan. And 
some people are speculating that could mean that maybe we're going to get new versions of them. Yeah, this is all speculation, which always annoys Ravi because every week there's always some sort of rumour or speculation about to be, what, to be honest, what Sega I, are up to. <laughs> I'm not that annoyed with this one because they have been doing a lot of remakes and everybody's yeah. been doing remakes, so it kind of seems to be... The one that I get annoyed with is the Dreamcast 2's coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny, that's our next story. Let's <laughs> yeah, it's not really. But yeah, we've got, we've got Ranger X... Crusader of Sentai, which or sorry, Crusader of Senti, which are two Mega Drive titles, and then the third one is Linkle Liver Story, which <laughs> which I'd never heard of, which I've never heard of either. Now Ranger X got a worldwide release and is. A- have you played Ranger X before? I have. I have Ranger X as yeah. well. Um, which is- so I remember this game. I looked at it and I thought, oh, I don't know any of these. And then I looked at um, a YouTube playthrough yeah. of it and I thought, oh my God, because I remember yeah. my friend at school renting this game and he got the the six-button controller and yeah. it was one of the few games that worked with it. And I didn't know what it was called or anything until I watched this video, but I remember it being a good game. This- uh, insanely good graphics as well. Yeah, Ranger uh, X. That's really weird because Ranger X for me was a, a game a, f- a friend of mine rented. As well, right. um, interesting. Was his name Martin? No, it wasn't actually. It was Kieran. But uh, I remember for years, I was like, "What is that game?" Like, I always remember in my head, "What was that game? What was that game?" Where you had this little little machine, you were a robot, and then you had a machine following you around, which you could jump on and stuff like that and use. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's 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 quite an expensive game. Not massively expensive game. It was quite an expensive game to get a hold of, and it came out in 1993. And as Ravi said, it's a beautiful looking Mega Drive game, and it does utilize the six button controller. And then Crusader of Senti came out in 94. It's essentially a Zelda ripoff, a Link to the Past ripoff, which once again is a pretty rare game. And from what I understand, had quite a limited release for the Mega Drive outside of Japan. It was, you know, it was right near the end. It came out in, in the US in like 97, but it came out in Japan in like 94. But once again, it's, you know, regarded a really, really, really good Mega Drive game. So we've got two kind of top tier Mega Drive games there. Um, Link All of a Story, from what I understand, is a Japanese only RPG, which never came out anywhere else, which is quite a lot of Sega Saturn games. There was like a thousand games for the Saturn, which never made it out of Japan. But no way. Yeah, it is a little bit like, where are they going with this? Do you know what I do, mean? Do you think maybe they'd do like a, a Western translation of that? or? I- I think you're right. I think we're going to get a Western translation. I think it's going to be pretty. It's. I think it's just going to, they're going to come out on the Switch or something or on Xbox Live. You know, mm. I think that's where they're probably going to end up. You know, the optimist in me is they're going to release this on some sort of hardware or something. Do you know what I mean? You just don't know what they're up to. It could be anything. My imagination instantly my imagination went to another Mega Drive Mini. Do you know what I mean? A but, Mega Drive 2 Mini. Yeah, but then I was like, well, you've got a Sega Saturn game there, so that I can't see that happening. And then I can't see a Saturn Mini happening because you've got two Mega Drive games there. Yeah. So the pessimist in me is just saying, okay, it's probably just digital re-releases of these games. But then at the same time, it could be nothing. You know what Sega are like? <laughs> just just doing it to make headlines or troll people. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, just, you just never know with Sega. But it would be awesome to see them. And I think you're right. I think the Switch would be a logical platform for these to live on, I think. You know, if they put them up as, you know, if they release these, especially um, Ranger X, that is something I would buy if it was maybe like, you know, six ninety nine or something on on the Switch digital store, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes it's people don't want to emulate and people don't want to have to buy the original games because they are expensive. So, like you say, it is nice when they're like six, seven quid and stuff like that just to pick up and play. 
So we'll see though. It could be nothing. It could it could be something. You just never know with Sega. You know, it would be cool though as well if they you know if these do sell well because they are like you said games that maybe not a lot of people have played. So it's mm. quite good that they're actually you know if they are looking at remastering these, getting these kind of more obscure games. I think is a, a nice step in because you know we've all how many times we've talked about it before. How many times have you you bought bloody Sonic the Hedgehog two? Yeah, over well, the years. I think <laughs> I've got about thirty copies of Streets of Rage two on different consoles. <laughs> we don't need any more re-releases. Of Streets <laughs> and of Rage kind of like I'm interested in looking at this uh, Crusader of the Senti. Because yeah. it's like um, a Zelda kind of clone yeah. and, and their version of it. And, you know, I, I'd like to see what they kind of did and how they handled it, you know. Yeah, how it holds I'm, up I'm, kind of thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm exploring the old Zelda albums and <laughs> the the back catalogue. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it, it'd be good to look at the alternative. Yes, you know what, what you're right, might be right about as well if they give that a Western translation because um, it kind of does feel like companies are... Um, a lot more open these days to releasing like JRPG games in the West because you know there is a, a dedicated audience who will buy them whereas back in the day it felt like they just wouldn't release them yeah in Japan. yeah I think I think you're right RPGs JRPGs are definitely a hell of a lot bigger this last 10 years than they were in the mid 90s and I think you know especially with like you know with COVID and stuff like that people are looking back and being like well what did we miss and there is a huge Saturn library that nowhere else got of a lot of JRPGs and so you can you only know, get ROM hacks done by yeah. some kid at home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And put their own dialogue in there and stuff like that. So it would be cool to see them. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on that story and uh, we'll link it up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, maybe you want a game that you can play on your original hardware and the Switch. Um, this looks pretty cool. A new Game Boy Advance game. In fact, the first commercial release on the Game Boy Advance. I think since... Um, I was trying to find out what was the last game that came out in the GBA. I think it was a game called um, The Bee Game that came out back in um, 2007. <laughs> Didn't get reviewed very well back then, but this looks like it's the first commercial title since then. This one actually looks really good. A kind of a cutesy platformer, isn't it, featuring a dog? Yeah, we've got Good Boy Galaxy, which is currently, at the point of recording this, five days into its Kickstarter. Um, by the time this episode is out it'll be a week into its kickstarter and this looks like a a really really nice looking metroidvania kind of exploration adventure platformer game where you essentially play as a space dog uh running around shooting aliens crawling through dungeons and caves and stuff um, called maxwell called maxwell there we go and it's got really nice graphics for the gba hasn't it it looks, like, it looks stunning, but uh, you said it wrong. It should be good boy. It should be good boy. Um, but what's, re- what's really cool is the article I found on Nintendo Life says, at the point of this statement, it's on £3,000 on the Kickstarter. And I was like, oh, okay, and it needs 18000 I've clicked on it. It said 100000 <laughs> So It's gone up by about <laughs> two grand since we started recording this episode 15 minutes ago. There you go. So <laughs> yeah. it's doing it's pretty flying. good. And they are doing a physical release for the GBA. The um, the game is £18 if you want the digital version of it. And you can get the Switch version or you can get a digital GBA version where you will have to put it on an emulator or onto an EverDrive to play on TGBA, uh, which is fair enough. But you can get the physical release with a nice GBA cartridge in game and everything, which I think is about 44 quid. But this looks really cool. It looks beautiful, like the parallax on the background and a lot of the modern kind of effects that they've got going on there. Yeah. Re- really stunning. And... It reminds me a bit of Wonder Dog 
if if yeah. you ever played that, but um, yeah. it's probably a bit better. <laughs> better. Than Wonder Dog. <laughs> it can't be hard. Yeah, yeah, it can't be hard. Um, I mean, if you showed me this, or Dan or Ravi sent me this, and just said that's a Switch game, I'd be like, oh yeah, it's a retro-looking Switch game. But the fact that it is actually running on GBA hardware, and it does, it looks stunning. Yeah, and I like the fact that he's he's kind of delivering it. You know, you can get it for 18 quid, and uh, you can have that on the GBA, but you use one of the flashcards in there. So you can do that, or you can actually have it as, you know, a physical pack with the yeah. cartridge and uh, box and everything. But uh, it's pretty cool that you can just have it on the flash one yeah. as well. And uh, a Nintendo Switch version is going to actually pop out as well, a physical one. Oh, they're doing the physical Switch release as well. Yeah. Well, they're only releasing 200 um, Game Boy Advance carts. Oh, wow! So that is, you know, it, yeah, it's quite scarce, you know, and especially if you're if you're a fan of that platform and you know having a new commercial game mm-hmm. for the first time in like what 13 years, a big deal, I think. I mean, there are some people in this article that I link up in Nintendo Life who are um, saying it would be nice if they went to Nintendo and tried to get the official Nintendo seal of approval on there and you know, get it age rated and make it like a full commercial release. But then I'm not sure that Nintendo would even do that anymore. I mean, you know, for, for a system they've discontinued, I can't imagine there is any kind of licensing process. I guess I guess Nintendo they have to be a, an official Switch dev if they're going yeah, to release it on the Switch. But in terms of getting like, you know, the, the physical versions of the GBA carts with a Nintendo logo on oh, and um, approved yeah. and all that, <laughs> I can't imagine that Nintendo do anything like that anymore. But there is a demo you can play of it right now um, in the, in your web browser, which I'll link up. I don't know if you guys have tried it out. I was playing it a bit earlier on, trying to play it with the cursor keys and stuff on, <laughs> on the PC keyboard. Probably not as same as, you know, the same experience and as playing on an actual. You. It, it yeah. seems to be um, multi-language as well, because uh, even looking on the Kickstarter, there's like loads of different languages here as well. And uh, they're talking about translations, which is pretty cool. So it's going to have like worldwide appeal. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. The... GBA, like, it's, it's a very advanced system, actually. Like, there was even 3D that could have been done in there. Mm. Which, like, my pun, advanced system. But, yeah, um, I did. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, it was really it, a Super, it, a super Nintendo handheld, really, wasn't it? Yeah. It, it, was, it was. It was. It was a handheld Super Nintendo. But then, as Ravi said, there was actually quite a few 3D games on there, which actually ran mm. quite well. I think it was, about, it was about 10 games on the GBA, which were, like, fully 3D, you know, like, fully 3D rendered games. Uh, you know, like first-person shooters and stuff like that, you know, which were a little bit clunky. You know, you had to use, like, the LNR and stuff to, you know, strife and stuff like that, strife, whatever it is. But um, it was an advanced system, and, you know, I'd like to kind of see how they've got this running on the GBA to see if they've done anything, you know, cartridge-wise, anything in there extra because of it does look really nice, you know. And as Ravi said, like, the palette scrolling and stuff like that looks spot-on. Yeah, and I'll link up the trailer if you want to check it out. Um, any idea on delivery for it then? Is, is there like a, an expected uh, day for it? Um, so from what I can see, the GBA releases are aiming for December 2022, so mm. over a year away, and then the Switch versions, uh, March 2023. So we've got a way off still, but yeah, they've absolutely smashed it on Kickstarter, so I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, they've sold all of their Kickstarter versions, actually, so they're saying that you have to get the non-Kickstarter versions, which are... Uh, oh, really? firstpressgames.com oh okay yeah, so they've they've done so well that they've sold out the whole stock that they had yeah <laughs> i think maybe the guys who are behind this might you know once this one's out 
kind of dabble their hands at some other games as well. Maybe try and get Streets of Rage 4 running on the GBA or something like that. <laughs> oh, that'd be good. <laughs> and as I said before, we don't want any more Streets of Rage remasters. Yeah, or remakes, true. But yeah. That, one I, that one I'd go for. <laughs> that one I'd go for. So if you want to try out the demo, it is available now and you can back that on Kickstarter. Um, still a few weeks left at the time the show goes out. So I'll link that up in our show notes as well. Now, do you guys remember at the start of the year, we were talking about um, the fact that <laughs> there is going to be a television show, a game show made about Frogger. You know, you know. sometimes I don't believe these things. Like, you know, you, you hear about Tetris, the movie that, that's supposed to be happening and stuff. And you hear about, like, all of these things. And uh, a lot of it doesn't come to fruition, but this one actually seems to. Well, this is on, um, it's going to be on Peacock, which... I've not used Peacock before. It looks like it's some kind of streaming service. I've never, heard of, I've never heard of it until now. <laughs> well, this is Frogger, the uh, TV game show. And I've chopped down, they've put like a trailer up that's about 90 seconds long. Um, and I've chopped it down just to a few of the audio highlights. So um, it sounds pretty full on. Prepare yourself. The greatest video game of the 80s Are you ready for is now the greatest showdown on TV. This is Frogger. $100,000 on the line. You know the aim. Don't fall in. Get to the other side. Ready? Three, two, one. Are you frogging kidding me? That's how you play Frogger. Somebody pumped some quarters into the machine. Are you frogging kidding me, Joe? <laughs> that, 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 that music so does not. so cheesy, Dan. <laughs> it does not sound like Frogger. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it, I think it looks fun. For kids and stuff, and uh, if you're a fan of that total wipeout yeah. TV show, then uh, this looks pretty interesting. That is the first thing I thought. It's total wipeout, isn't well, what's it? What's yeah, that? It, floor is lava as well. It, That's it literally one. is exactly the same as total wipeout and the floor is lava. But you know what gets me about these things? I my, my wife really likes these shows, so we always kind of watch them when they come to Netflix and you know Amazon and stuff. I always just want to have a go on them. And because it is Frogger and it is to do with like retro gaming, it makes me just want to go on it even more. I mean, I'd probably fall off it straight away. I must. Admit, I don't think I could get up it. <laughs> it I must admit, it could be anything. It, you know, yeah. the branding it didn't. You know, there's nothing on there other than the fact that it's cars. It's, it's very like, American. Like, um, yeah. If, if it's British, they'd have that John Anderton contenders ready, Frogger yeah. ready, go. Yeah, yeah, but it just. I don't understand really that, like, I'm just watching the trailer. What really makes it Frogger other than you have to dodge some cars and you jump on some pixelated Frogger-looking yeah. floating <laughs> things at some point? It's pretty cool in the trailer. Uh, Ash said hi's on there, actually, which is, uh, she's a Twitch streamer who was uh, on the Amigaphone as well. Uh, so that's pretty oh, okay. cool, seeing that there might be some people that you recognise on it. But um, I guess this show is amazingly easy to do in COVID, isn't it? It's like, just have a studio, <laughs> a load of stuff and chuck people in water. Yeah, I mean, looking at the trailer, it is, yeah, total wipeout, but, you know, instead of elements on that, they've got like, yeah, you know, crocodiles, like you've got in Frogger, or you've got to try and get yeah. past cars that will bump you off into the water. So it's a very tenuous link. I think it's an interesting franchise choice that they've gone for for something like this. Because you watch that trailer... It's very loud. You know, you've got that music in there. It's full on energy. Looks like it's aimed at like a, maybe a teenage, early 20s audience. In that respect, it's interesting that they chose a 40-year-old gaming franchise to tie into it. Well, I think, I, I think Frogger has probably been sold off um, before because I remember going into, you know, these arcades where you get tickets and stuff. 
and there was a giant machine that was a frogger one and uh, you just hit left and right and kind of try and get yeah. across and you won tickets and stuff on it. And and I think Frogger's probably um, had its rights sold or, or, you know, it's it's one of these that's quite available to get. And uh, well, It's Konami, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and and they've probably sold it off. It's well, like, if it's Konami, that's the rights it. Oh, Frogger. Do you think asteroids would be next? Or? <laughs> We're going to launch you into space and you've got to like, <laughs> you've got to dodge these foam flowing around asteroids. <laughs> or you fall back to Earth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it turns out there is actually a new Frogger game. And according to this article on Polygon that I hadn't heard of, actually called them Frogger in Toy Town. That apparently to celebrate its 40th birthday was released on Apple Arcade recently. Oh, wow. Okay. So um, it looks like, you know, Konami are still obviously putting the Frogger franchise out there. I just thought, you know, for, for a game show that's obviously aimed at such a young audience, it was really weird that they picked a 1981 arcade game to <laughs> use as like the, the lead I, character. I thought but... you were going to mention the Seinfeld scene, uh, Dan, being a Seinfeld oh, yeah. fan, where he has to cross the road with the uh, Frogger arcade machine. Well, they've embedded that um, Seinfeld clip in this article. It's basically George gets them the high score on a Frogger machine. I, from memory, I think it's in like a cafe that's closing down. Right. And um, he, he buys a Frogger machine to keep his high score, but he has to keep it powered up all the way home. Obviously, so if he unplugs it, he's going to lose his high score. <laughs> so it's him trying to get this arcade cabinet back to his house. So, oh, um, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to check that not out. The first, so yeah, not the first time Frogger's made a TV appearance, but um, definitely looks the most um, hyper so far, I think. Now, this is quite cool as well. Another franchise from back in the early 80s that's now made its way back to the front of the headlines again this week, Pac-Man. Now, this is actually two big 80s names, Pac-Man and Casio, who've released a new watch themed on Pac-Man. And actually looking at this, it's um, themed on one of um, Casio's classic watches, um, which is the F100 model, which came out back in 1978. I think it's actually the watch that Ripley was wearing in the Alien movies. You know, that was meant to be that really futuristic watch Mm -hmm. that she had on back then when that film came out. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, this looks, looks cool and it's £95. And I know Casio retro watches are really popular at the moment. But I just feel like this is going to sell out straight away and they're just going to end up on eBay. I think, I can't remember if we actually mentioned it or not, but the Mario watch that came out last month, I can't remember what brand did it, but they came out at like £2,000 and straight away sold out and they were going on eBay for like thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds. So that's my concern with this. As cool as it looks, I just feel like it's just going to go crazy high. I hate to admit it, I didn't know that Casio was still about. <laughs> I thought it was like Polaroid, it had kind of gone and got sold off. But, oh, it's good to see him still making watches. I'm just nostalgic about that. Well, this has that classic look. I mean, it's gold-plated. I mean, I say that, it's probably not actually, it's not gold at that price. No way is it no. gold at that price. But it's gold colour. Yeah. And you've got the two separate parts of the watch. I mean, it's got that kind of um, hexagonal almost look, but straight mm. sides. Probably a name for that shape that I forgotten in maths class years ago and then you've got just you know a very simple watch there with you know the time at the top in that classic old school digital watch style really the only thing about this that makes it pac-man is it's kind of got the pac-man mazes so, so can, around you, can the time. you actually play pac-man on it no no <laughs> it's literally just got a pac-man print on the uh on the face of the watch and on the strap. And the back, it? actually. Oh, is it got yeah, it on the back the back looks well. really nice. Yeah, if you turn it over, they've kind of engraved it onto the back of the watch oh, as yeah. well, which looks that's, really that's nice. That's quite smart, yeah. Yeah, it makes it a bit more like a you know collector's item that's kind of engraved in the steel on the back there. Um, but really, I mean, it's it's those watches that you'd win 
in those like you know the, the grabber machines at the uh, at the arcades yeah. back in the day. Um, you've got an alarm, a stopwatch. It's got an LED light in there as well. The calendar apparently. So you know, it's pretty advanced for a Casio watch. So just just who's going to use the calendar on the digital watch? <laughs> just, these days, just with this so. all, all in mind, <laughs> it's it's already sold out. <laughs> Right. Because <laughs> I was just looking now, thinking, oh, you know, maybe I can try and get my hands on one of these. It's already sold out and people are selling it on eBay for £200 by now. So they've only doubled the price so far. But you know what, though, because I mean, I am I wear an Apple Watch, which really, you know, kind of does everything, you know, that I need a watch to do and much more as well, you know, nags me all day and really annoys me most of the time, if I'm honest. But I do have, I've got an old Commodore watch. Mm that I did a YouTube video on probably about five, six years ago now. Okay. That's kind of the only classic watch I've got. But I know we have met people. I don't know if you remember when we were in um, Play Expo in London, Archie McLean did um, an onstage presentation with us, and he's a massive watch collector. And I think, you know, we're on stage with him for about an hour and a half. He did about 45 minutes on um, on watches, I think, at first. We're like, let's move you on to the games a bit now. Uh, but it was... It is a community that's got a really loyal collector base. You know, the weird thing watches. is, I like watching watch. I like watching watch. I like watching watch repair videos on, uh, mm. on YouTube. You're such a like... nerd, Ravi. It's <laughs> <laughs> so tiny. But um, also, I think you guys have been um, getting messages from my Apple Watch, and none of them make sense because I'm shouting into my watch. And um, the, the, the voice detection doesn't like an accent from Nottingham. So. Eat up Martha. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, there's been a few odd ones from Ravi recently and a few spelling mistakes and stuff, which I've, you don't usually get from you. So that explains it. <laughs> you know what, though, I think looking at this, I mean, there is something, I mean, it's going to be sold as a... A collector's kind of item, I'm sure. It's gonna. It says here in this article, I'll make a great little Christmas present. You know, if they make more at that price, I can imagine lots of people finding them in their Christmas stockings and that this year. But there is something looking at it. I mean, you know, like I said, wearing my Apple Watch all day, you're never away from it. You know, you always get your alerts popping up and it, it reminds you when to breathe mm. and stand up and walk around. There is something to be said about just having a simplistic device. It just tells the time. And I mean, I remember as a kid getting my first, I don't know if you guys had these, a calculator watch. And I felt so advanced when I got a calculator on my wrist. I had an Action Man calculator watch. I'll have you I had know. one with a light that, that <laughs> glowed in the dark, basically. Yeah, mine did that <laughs> as well. <laughs> Shall I tell you the coolest watch I remember seeing back in the day? It was a watch that had infrared built in and you could change channels on TVs. I was it. always a naughty guy at school that would do that and... The teacher would never know, and it was so obvious, like the guy pointing his wrist at the television. <laughs> when you had to sit through all those boring daytime BBC Two educational programmes, yeah, some kid at the back could have just turned it over to cartoons or something, that would have been amazing. But um, yeah, sadly, I didn't know anyone that had one. I remember looking at it in the window of Tandy and being like, oh my God, that looks amazing. You know but, what um, this is for? I've seen a few people with these like Pac-Man suits and they're like yes. full suits with the Pac-Man <laughs> maze. This would be the ideal accessory. You know, It would be, actually. The suit yeah. and the watch, yeah. <laughs> I expect to see you in that, Ravi, next time I see you. <laughs> with little Pac-Man cufflinks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if we ever go to like a podcast award show or something again, Ravi, you've got to turn up in one of full, those. Full packed out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Pac-Man glasses and everything. Your hair dyed yellow. <laughs> Eating pills. So, uh, <laughs> maybe not that. But yeah, if you do want to get hold of one of these, or try at least, I'll uh, link that up in our show notes as well. Now, of course, the Retro Hour podcast comes out every single Friday. And you know, it's heartwarming many weeks to see 
And not that we brag or anything, but we, we get a decent number of downloads and a decent number of new listeners. And it's very heartwarming to see this show often there in the top 10 category of the Apple Podcast chart, alongside like Wired Magazine, the BBC, our arch nemesis, Gardener's World, <laughs> or Gardener's Question Time. We still haven't beat them to number one in that chart yet, but one day. But, you know, seeing us alongside these massive corporations when we are and we always have been and we always will be an independent podcast and the only reason we can stay like this and we haven't got bosses telling us what to do and everything is thanks to our incredible community of patrons who allow us to keep doing the show each week oh the patrons are absolutely fantastic and you know you're right it's like wonderful being independent i think that's how we've managed to kind of keep it intelligent and also keep it fun you know it's 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 good fun for us free to do and uh I can imagine having like, you know, a producer going, do this boys, do that. Oh no. And it, it would just, you can't talk about the CDI. Yeah, job yeah. It would just, it would just rip the fun out of it. And I think, you know, that comes across to the listeners and uh, it's amazing that you guys have actually supported us and you can continue to do as well. Um, you know, without you guys, this show wouldn't be going. It's literally three of us sat on our roadcasters chatting every single week. And, uh, Joe has to put the kid to sleep and, you know... For a uh, kid. <laughs> Dan has to, you know, get his dog quiet. And we all kind of settle Some, down sometimes and Sometimes we, we have to pause for the dog sometimes. Oh, yeah, there's always a dog pause, yeah. And, uh, you know, Patreon really helps um, just keep the show going and keep us alive, really. Yeah, I think at the time we're recording this, we're on about, what, 224 patrons now. So that is incredible to see. So much support in there as well. And of course, you know, our patrons are just lovely people as well. We do a monthly hangout with them as well, don't we? Yeah, it is really, really fun. And I do love seeing everybody. And just like, you know, sometimes I get a bit like, I don't want to say like worried or intimidated, but you know. I, I thought get, you were going to say emotional. Yeah, I, you know, <laughs> no, I do. I get, I get emotional about the whole thing that people, you know, actually want to come and, you know, support us and hang out with us. It's kind of like a you know without sounding too cheesy it is a dream come true that people have let us continue doing this you know there was a bit of a cloud over the podcast at one point and when we were potentially losing the studio that we were recording it at dan's work you know there was lots of talks mm. of you guys can't carry on doing this and then covid came along it was all really really worrying but you know we're here we are a year and a half later after launching the patreon and doing it from home and i'd like to think we're going better than ever you know as strong as we always were yeah so, and it's, it's thank you to our listeners and Patreons. And I think you're right as well, because I know there is that much out there. Every YouTuber wants you to support them on Patreon, mm-hmm. you know, probably every podcast as well. So the fact that we do have this, you know, great core audience of over 220 people who actually choose to support our show out of everything that's out there yeah. is, you know, not only very humbling, but incredible as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're not all take, take, take. We give back as well. You actually get access to our um, our monthly patrons only podcast that we do called the Retro Hour After Hours, where our latest episode was a little look back to the year 2002. I always like doing the year recaps. They're always fun. Yeah, I, always I, fun. I like the console ones as well. Like, I'm so excited mm. about doing the PlayStation one. <laughs> I, I could just yeah. talk about getting my PlayStation chipped and my dad killing me. That, <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> like. That's going to be a fun one doing the PlayStation one. And we we need to um, get some more ideas from the Discord on what to do on the on the uh, after hours. But a lot of people do. I've said it before. A lot of people say to us like, oh, we want to hear more about your guys' experience and opinions and stuff. But that's that's where the after hours comes in. You know, it's a little bit more about us, isn't it? 
all our memories and a lot of kind of, you know, stories of what happened. When we do the years, we play a lot of news clips mm-hmm. and talk about them and examine all the big games and tech that came out. And, uh, yeah, we do specific episodes about different systems. We've done the Mega Drive, the Super Nintendo. We're going to be doing the PS1 next. That'll be the next episode. Um, so you can get access to that. Join us for the monthly patrons hangouts. You also get the normal podcast ad-free and you get it early as well. And, of course, the reason that you're doing it, though, is just to make sure that we can keep bringing the show out for you every single week. And, of course, we haven't got any stress. We haven't got to put you know, our hands in our pockets and pay for ourselves. And, of course, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And let's give a big mention to our incredible latest patrons. This is Robin Spira. Steve Plunkett. Jeff Durango. Howard Price. And Daniel Oskis who all made donations into the running of the show. We massively appreciate that. And if you'd like to join them, we'll hopefully see you in the next Patrons Hangout. You'll find it all on our website at theretrohour.com. Right next, inside the world of RPG games, adventure games, dungeon games. You're going to really enjoy this one. Our special guest is Neil Halford, and he's next on the Retro Hour podcast. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time for our favourite part of the show where we welcome on a very special guest and today we're talking to a true veteran of the industry and RPG games, one of our favourite genres as well so it is a pleasure to welcome to the show Neil Holford. Hello Neil, how are you? Uh, Very great to be here, Uh, a pleasure to be with you guys. Yeah, really appreciate you joining us. Now, we always like to kind of find out what, you know, got you into the industry initially and kind of what sparked that first interest in gaming. I mean, kind of going right back to the beginning. Do you remember what was your first experience of an electronic game? Uh, My first electronic game uh, would have actually been uh, the Atari 2600. Um, Mm. uh, My uncle had had one in his... uh, a stepson's room and um so uh he had pong and uh so that was my first probably computer gaming experience uh at home i uh, the hard part is is i'm not really sure whether i played that or uh or if i played space war on an old stand-up arcade game which uh, i don't know if you guys ever saw that or or, or aware of it but uh there yeah. was uh it was kind of like asteroids but you had a ship that looked exactly like the enterprise <laughs> from star trek and it was kind of funky because it actually allowed you to set what rules were available uh in the game so you could change the gravity you could change whether it wrapped around and so it actually gave you some player control which to the best of my knowledge that is the only arcade game you know stand up arcade game that ever gave you that kind of control or that kind of power and and that's we're talking very early 80s that's uh, uh, really early 80s because like uh, the mainframe that was a mainframe game originally wasn't it and, uh, i i think i think it might have been uh Sp- space war might have been I, I know they also had a star trek game that was on mainframes uh, like uh, pdps and, and, and stuff yeah um but uh or a deck or something like that but and so that was my first experience of an electronic 
game that I can I can recall ones that I definitely played myself anyway. Well, I believe you and I, Neil, are um, kindred spirits. I've been a radio presenter for 20 years, and I believe you actually got into radio at the age of 17. What was yes, kind of the background I, there? Yeah, that was my first job straight out of out of high school. Um, it started off because a buddy of mine had a job working at a radio station in my hometown, and he would let me come over and hang out with him whenever he was on air. And so I kind of got to see what he was doing there. And so... Uh, three days after I graduated, because I had essentially kind of already trained uh, by hanging out with my buddy, uh, they said, OK, well, we, we have a position open. Do you want to come over and, and be a, a DJ for us? And so uh, my first position was at a little tiny, what we call the Stone Age Country radio station <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, that was in my hometown um, called KTOW in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. Uh, which is a little town, just a town outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, I realize for for your listeners that <laughs> that's uh, the, just to give them some idea about where that is. So that's that's northeastern Oklahoma. And I believe you used to do um, radio dramas as well. I and mean, did that kind of yes. help you with your your storytelling skills? Absolutely. And that's uh, so in a roundabout way, it's actually how I got into into gaming uh, or into into my 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 professional gaming world. So uh, my my buddy and I, we would often be running things like the Kentucky Derby or the Kansas City Royals baseball games. And so we would have long stretches of time when actually we didn't have anything to do, but basically sit there and wait for a commercial break. Uh, and so uh, some we got this idea one time that let's let's make a War of the Worlds style radio broadcast like Orson Welles, Welles did back in the in the 30s and scared the hell out of everybody. So we, Halloween <laughs> was coming up and we said, let's do something similar to that, uh, except based in our, our hometown. And so we did a uh, a something based on a local legend called the Bulldog Man. So we did Shadow of the Bulldog Man. And that kicked off us doing a series of different radio dramas, which we called Uncharted Regions. So we just sort of did those intermittently when we had time and, and we, when we had a script ready or whatever. And so I did that uh, from 1984 until 1989. Um, and then, of course, I, w I went off to college and, and still my buddy had had access to the radio station. So we still did a few of them even after I went off to college. But um, that led to me actually going into radio, television, and film production and in college, uh, which was great because by the time I got to college, it's like, well, I'm, I'm basically training to, to, to do the job I already know how to do. <laughs> but uh, so after I had graduated from college and uh, I got a phone call from another buddy of mine that I'd gone to junior high with who had gone to work for New World Computing, uh, mm. and they were looking for a writer. And he said, well, I think you would uh, you'd be great fit for here if you wanted to come and do this. And so do you have anything we, you could send to them as a writing sample? And I said, well, I've got this big stack of radio drama scripts uh, and the, the, the episodes themselves uh, that I can send you is because these are probably my best examples of, of my writing. And they they really liked what I had written. And of course, at the time, you know, you're mostly writing dialogue for computer games. And so that was actually uh, my entree into working professionally in the computer gaming industry was because of my radio drama experience. Did you end up playing much D&D as well? Because I know a lot of people uh, were influenced by D&D. Yes, I played the white box version of D Dungeons and Dragons first. And so that early uh, 
uh, of course, I, I know a lot of people got started in you know second edition, the AD and D era or whatever. But but my first play with it was uh, playing the white box version of D and D with a buddy of mine. But uh, another buddy of mine had got into second edition D and D, and so uh, we had a, a role playing group um, that we played pretty regularly. Uh, and then after that, I discovered Call of Cthulhu, and, and that that really became my game was Call of Cthulhu because I, I, I was already familiar with the works of HP Lovecraft and, uh, uh, but I just really loved the openness of the chaosium system uh, because it was a lot less about, Oh, you know, look up the table in the back of the manual says half elf spells, spills a lantern on a stairwell table. Uh, <laughs> and I, so I like the openness of the chaosium that was more storytelling oriented. Uh, and so that that always tended to be sort of the the chaosium, you know, a rune quest, general pl- role playing. Uh, mm-hmm. Their their systems in general have always tended to be kind of my guiding star ever since. In terms of, I like the simplicity of those and how well they work for st- storytelling purposes. And you can kind of get up and go. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot more flexibility. You know, you had the resistance table and and it was more skills based. You didn't have levels and you didn't have classes. You know, you were free to basically uh, to try to be whatever you wanted to. And you got better at the things you you worked at and stuff you didn't work at would kind of, you know, decay or, or whatever. And so so you kind of created your own class. And I like the flexibility of that. You weren't just stuck with, OK, I'm here's my skill tree and I basically have to take this skill and I have to take that skill. Uh, and I, I think that I, I like that flexibility a lot more because at least it felt much more organic to me. Well, I know that a lot of those um, pen and paper role-playing game players transitioned onto early micros like the Apple II, for example. Was there anything on that platform that really caught your attention? I had uh, my first computer was an Atari 400, uh, which uh, if if you aren't familiar with it, uh, it was a uh, basically, they took their Atari gaming system and just set it up so that it could uh, you could st- had a cartridge uh, that would go into it like a like a regular gaming cartridge. And so you could slap in here's a word processor or here's whatever. I had Star Raiders, which was one of my favorite games from that era. Uh, but the keyboard was a flat membrane kind of uh, thing. So you didn't even have keys. You just had this membrane that you had to kind of punch at. And it was terrible because half the times you'd, ha- you'd like practically break your finger trying to punch it hard enough so that it would register your keystrokes. But uh, so that was my first home computer was was a Atari. I later did get an Apple, but that was whenever we were into the Mac monolith era of things. Mm. I, I never saw a 400 until I went over to America. And uh, I, I saw the 400 and 800s over there. I was like, yeah, wow. I pretty much went through the whole Apple line. I had a 400, I had an 800, I had a 1200, and then I had then I my last one was a was a 520 ST. Um, and the, I, the 520 ST was a really wacky machine because, in addition to being a computer, it was, to the best of my knowledge, the only computer that ever shipped with built-in MIDI ports in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, I really got excited by the machine because in addition to, you know, one of my other numerous crazy hobbies on the side and something I'd gotten into whenever I was doing the radio dramas uh, is that I do like electronic music. 
And so having an Atari that had the built-in ports into it made it really easy for me to uh, to create music because there, there were a lot of programs designed for the 520SD because the, the Amiga became sort of the artist's computer and the SD became the, the musician's computer. And I, I first really kind of got got interested into it uh, uh, in it because of Jean Michael Jarre because he was in all the electronic uh, musicians magazines, and so because he was kind of pushing the uh, the ST is what got me interested into it. But um, but then, didn't Cubase start on there? Didn't it on the ST? Yes, I believe. Yes, it yeah. did. Yes, it did. And, and uh, uh, the uh, there's like a lot of really important uh, composition programs started there. And also the uh, Atari used uh, also kind of uh, did weird things with MIDI and they actually used it as a kind of a alternate version to LAN. Uh, and so there were actually games you played very via the MIDI ports. Wow. Um, and so uh, I never got to see the architecture of how that worked, but I- I'm sure that was kind of loony trying to figure out how to make MIDI work as a LAN. Well, I heard that you were a fan of Zork and kind of addicted to that oh. as a child. Uh, oh. what, what did you love about that game? Um, I, I think that, you know, uh, the first thing was the amazing power and the flexibility of their parser. I mean, the, the, the people who wrote that really spent a lot of time thinking about uh, what, you know, how people are going to respond uh, to to what's going on. And so, of course, it, it was it was like a, you know, it's a lot of respects. It was a novel that you played, uh, you know, is, and so of course the choose your own adventure books were along the same formula, you know? Uh, and so I, I think that they, that it really kind of plugged into that idea of allowing me to kind of visualize for myself what things, you know, look like. And, uh, but I, I was always impressed with how good their parser was in terms of the crazy things that you would try to do. And then Infocom came along with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was just completely nuts. I still, my favorite, <laughs> pro- probably my f- favorite text game of all time was, was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, and God, the whole sequence of trying to get the Babelfish. Uh, oh, the uh, amount um, of times I nearly threw my computer out the window playing that game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was just nuts trying to get through that. I never got around to, uh, I know that they did, uh, was it Starship Titanic? That they did. Mm. There was also another Doug Adams um, uh, one that they did as uh, as a text base, and I, I never got a chance to play that. But I was always curious, simply because I know he did have some involvement uh, with with the Hitchhikers game. So uh, I said, it, it, as awesome as that was, uh, Starship Titanic must have been really great too. But but anyway, Zork Zork was was really important because it was the first time I played a Dungeon and Dragon style game on a computer, even though it's very stripped down. A kind of experience but it's it was very it was the thing that was closest to playing a tabletop game because you know again everything's in your head and of course obviously the the parser wasn't as sophisticated as having a live dungeon master there but it was still very clear that they'd spent a lot of time thinking about all the permutations about things that the player is going to try to do and i think you made a good point then about it all being in your head i think that's why you know often i think text adventure games have really stood the test of time throughout, you know, all the graphical advancements we've had in the last like 40 years. But because it's like reading a book, it's, you know, lives in your imagination. So it's, you know, I've heard it before that text adventures have got the the best graphics ever because they all exist in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah. the great thing about it is, is that it's, it is 
all, you know, uh, if you were developing, uh, if you're developing a game like that, the, uh, if you decide that, oh, I need to change something, you can do it with, uh, it's, it's much easier for you to do and to change because it's like, yeah, oh, you know, by the way, we ran out of budget. We can't do, you know, this le- level or these levels. So you need to, you need to, you know, trim three chapters out of the game and it still all needs to make sense. And, and, uh, it's, it becomes a lot more difficult to, to change things in the modern era, particularly once we added in uh, the element of having, you know, real actors performing dialogue, uh, because mm-hmm. that tends to get, you know, uh, recorded months and months and months before we even get to a finished game. And so if you, if you're in testing and you realize something doesn't work, you're now stuck with, well, we can't really afford to go back into the studio and get changes to the dialogue. So you go, how the hell do I change this? How do I cut the stuff out and have this still make make sense? And of course, you know, now today you see playthroughs and people talking about, okay, well, this one thing starts to happen, then suddenly this seems to go away, and I don't know what happened there. I said, well, what happened is probably uh, that they but a budget got cut or something else happened, and so they can't go back into the studio. <laughs> Uh, because yeah. th- that studio time is uh, particularly when you're dealing with like big name actors trying to schedule the time, pay them, pay the studio, everything else. It's a very expensive proposition. So text space is great because you want to make a change is bang. Okay. Five minutes, bang. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I don't, I don't ha- you know, if I want to create an entire new room or whatever, it doesn't cost me anything extra other than the time it cost me to pay the writer to write new stuff. But that's way cheaper than, paying a whole team of you know artists and and programmers and stuff to build all this new stuff and so uh there there's ways in which a text-based adventure is so much more flexible uh than than yeah, you would have with point. with other kinds of, of games well how did you join um new world computing what was the story there so i, I again I'd, I'd finished up college um and uh my buddy ken mayfield called me up. And so again, we'd, we'd gone to, we were in junior high together. We'd also been in the same science fiction club in, in high school together. And he said, well, we have an opening here at New World. And so would you be interested? Well, actually, he originally he tried to pitch me to come out and work as a artist uh, because he had actually taught me to do some art. But I go, well, look, I, I'd love to do it, but I'm you know, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm still not very good. And what's going to happen is they're going to end up firing me because I'm not good enough because what you can do in a week would take me probably a month to do. <laughs> and I said, so uh, I, I appreciate the offer, but I don't think it's the right time. And he said, okay, fair enough. So uh, he called me back about three months later, said, okay, we have this opening. Uh, our, our writer uh, is, is leaving. And so we would like you to come out and, and join New World Computing. And so again, I sent him my scripts for, uncharted regions and they really enjoyed those uh they said well you fly out and and meet with uh, the head of the company who was of course john van canagam who was of uh the might and magic fame and so uh, i flew out and met with with john and uh it was i had a really great time so it was my first experience being in southern california so that was a little bit of shock for me because i grew up in outside of tulsa oklahoma which is you know uh a uh, it's it's a middle-sized city in in oklahoma but nothing like being in los angeles and so of course it's kind of culture shock there but uh, uh but anyway I, I met with jvc it was a really great meeting and I remember I was talking to him and I said, okay, so whenever we got done with our, our, our interview, I said, so that was really great. Do you know about 
you know, when in the next, you know, will be like three or four weeks before you make a decision. He says, oh, well, you're hired. We just wanted to bring you out to <laughs> make sure that it was going to be a good personality fit. And oh, nice. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, that's the easiest interview that I've ever been on. Um, and actually, I, I had another interview that was similar, but later on, but but that was really exciting. And so I went back uh, to Oklahoma and uh, got my beat up 73 Mustang and got my cousin to, to grab his van. And so uh, so three weeks later, I was I was back at um, New World and started my job uh, living there in I say Los Angeles, but we are technically out in the valley. So we're in uh, the I was living in a community called Van Nuys and the company had it had started in Van Nuys, but they were in Woodland Hills. But uh, uh, but anyway, it's still it's in the in the the uh, blob that is considered Los Angeles. <laughs> um well- what was the culture like at New World? Because I heard they were quite chilled with like, you know, oh, deadlines and stuff. But did they kind of help incubate a good development practice? Oh, well, I mean, uh, I mean, the, th- the thing about game development back in the day uh, is, of course, New World was uh, at the high. When, whenever I got there, I think there were only 18 of us. And I think by the time I left, there were maybe 30 of us, but it was kind of like being in a dorm, to be honest. Uh, it was uh, the oldest guy in the company was uh, was John Van Canigan. And so he was I think he had just had his 30th birthday. Uh, so I was 23, 24, something like that, whenever I went to work for them. But uh, there weren't really deadlines. Uh, uh, and of course, we didn't uh, we didn't have another you know, new world was its own publisher. So the idea was definitely the game is done whenever it is done. Of course, the other thing for for me was is that, yeah, okay, I had some Call of Cthulhu games that I had run, and I, obviously I'd been part of a D&D group, but I didn't have any experience in being a game developer. There were no classes you could go take to become a game developer. Uh, and so it was definitely kind of throw you into the deep end of the pool and you figure it out. You, you decide how you make computer games. And uh, John Van Canigan, even though he had done uh, Might and Magic 1 and Might and Magic 2 already, and they'd done the game King's Bounty, uh, it was had been recently finished. I was uh, I actually helped write some of the manual material for, for King's Bounty. But it was, it was very, uh, very kind of relaxed. And, you know, of course, I was... I wasn't married. Most of the people in the company weren't married. And so you had uh, a lot of us who would be there until two or three o'clock in the morning. And so we get done with whatever work we were supposed to do for the day. And so we would be in the conference room frequently playing Starfleet battles. Uh, Now, Starfleet battles, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. It was a, a, well, still is a tabletop game. That's a strategy game based on Star Trek. And so, but the games were ridiculously long. So each section uh, session, you'd be playing a, 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 an average game was six hours <laughs> uh, per session. And then frequently they would be eight hours, 10 hours or whatever. And of course, the vice president of the company was one of the world's champions at this. <laughs> and so, uh, and they had, per- and so the, uh, the game company had actually purchased uh, Starfleet battles, so they had the complete rights to develop it. And so, uh, the and part of the reason uh, they had hired me uh, was so that they could have ultimately develop uh, Starfleet battles into a, a role playing game, which became the game Planet's Edge. 
but uh, anyway, but it was just super relaxed. And um, I, I have mostly, you know, pretty good memories of, of being there. Uh, I, Los Angeles was always kind of a, a big shift for me simply because I'm not someone that really likes crowds. I don't really like lines. I don't like, you know, uh, and so the, the part about Los Angeles that a lot of people like, is just like, I'm in a big city and everything's exciting and all this other stuff. I hated it. I was just, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of an introvert uh, by nature. Um, and so it was, uh, it was sometimes uh, LA was a bit much for me, but, uh, but anyway, everybody at the company was, was great. I really enjoyed uh, working with all those wonderful people there. And uh, so uh, I started on a game uh, for Might and Magic 3. Um, and so I was working with John Van Canningham. And then they, at the same time, they said, we, I'd like you to start developing Planet's Edge. And I said, well, you know, <laughs> I'm barely getting my training wheels on in terms of figuring out what I'm doing here. So maybe uh, we maybe we should have somebody else uh, come in and do stuff. And I said, well, I, I, in some respects, because Might and Magic was already John Van Canningham's baby, uh, we all called him JVC. <laughs> Uh, uh, but, but since JVC, this was already kind of JVC's baby, uh, I kind of like to, to do something with planet's edge simply because, you know, this was, was kind of, uh, they hadn't really defined what it was going to be yet. And I said, I'd really love the opportunity to come in and help define the, uh, to define that. So called up another friend of ours from high school uh, that was actually my best buddy, uh, Ron Bollinger. And so I brought him out. And so uh, I'd been working on Might and Magic for about four months, five months, and kind of come up with the overall storyline of what it was going to be. Uh, so the whole main storyline of Might and Magic 3 about it being underwater and all of this stuff. Uh, that had been my concept, but I said, I need someone to come in and really develop this idea. And so, so all, all the goodness that is about Might and Magic 3 is really Ron's magic. And um, then I stepped over and took over working on Planet's Edge, and we kind of split it up between myself and the, the programmer, uh, Eric Hyman. And so all the stuff that was on the ground, you know, the RPG stuff, that was me. And all the stuff that was flying around in space and fighting, uh, fighting other ships was Eric. And so Eric and I handled, uh, kind of worked on on uh, Planet's Edge uh, together. And of course, uh, Ken Mayfield, who was the guy who had brought me out uh, to begin with, uh, he was the artist on that particular title. And, and of course, we had other people from who came in and, and did other art uh, for it as well. But it was primarily me. Uh, the, the 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 core team was myself, Eric, and and Kenneth. And that mm -hmm. was true of all the titles at, at New World. You would have a core teams that were three, four people. And it was kind of it was kind of like free genres as well, and I guess you you, you must have been sitting watching a lot of Star Trek as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I mean, I mean that uh, uh, Star Trek uh, is, is it, Star Trek was my gateway drug. Okay, so uh, in, in terms of Star Trek is what got me into fandom in the first place. I mean, I, I was watching uh, the whenever they were starting to do the the reruns of the original series uh, on Saturdays. Uh, that was a big deal for me, and of course, Star Trek the animated series. Series. I mean, that was my first real hook into Star Trek was watching the animated series. And it was hard sometimes to catch the reruns of, of the original. And it wasn't until I got into high school until they started running in a time slot that I could actually watch it. But uh, and of course, I read all the James Blish novelizations about Star Trek. But but I am a I am a Star Trek fan, hardcore, old school and uh, I still am. I'm, I'm, I actually, one of my co-writers that I work with sometimes is actually a writer who worked on Deep Space Nine and on Voyager. Oh, wow. I, 
I'm a uh, the director of photography for a documentary about a, a, Star, a Star Trek convention that went wrong, uh, <laughs> and so uh, so I'm I'm deeply enmeshed in the Trek world. We'll have to do a, a bit of a private Trek talk after this. As well, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm a fan as well. Um, but was it was it hard, kind of um, uh, stringing together those different genres in the in the title, um, um, you know, the different elements of it? Oh, you mean on Planet's Edge? You mean or yeah, in, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, it wasn't really that difficult. I mean, the uh, with with Planet's Edge, I really kind of approached it because you know. Uh, if it had been possible for us to string together all of to, to actually get the, the license to actually have Star Trek slapped onto it, I would have loved to have done that since we've already had basically the rules from Starfleet battles. Uh, but that would have been way too, too expensive for us to do. So we had the Starfleet uh, battles uh, rights to that, which of course by itself had a license from Star Trek in order to be able to do it. But, telling stories using characters from the television series was not part of the license that license so we, we just said okay well we have the rules to starfleet battles and for all intents and purposes it is starfleet battles uh, that's played electronically but you, you know you're not being required to do all of the like calculating okay uh i have to to determine how much energy i have in order to charge my phasers and photon torpedoes i mean starfleet battles is very if you like math starfleet battles is the game for you uh, but so so there was the the space battle stuff which is again very classic tabletop strategy style game you know so playing on a hex map and the role-playing section in most respects it probably is the most like Ultima, because uh, the the Might and Magic series is sort of two D and a half, where you're you're walking through in its, its first person kind of view. But but my, uh, but Planet's Edge was isometric, so the storyline for Planet's Edge was set up in such a way that every planet you would beam down to the planet, and every planet had its own uh, story that was kind of self contained story. Then mm-hmm. there would also be a sector that the planet was loca- uh, located in, and the sector would have its own kind of unifying storyline. And then, ever uh, then all the sectors together had one gigantic plot line that hooked them all together. And so, uh, trying to find a, something that threaded together through all that stuff at different levels—that was the most complex aspect of it. Uh, was trying to figure out how these all kind of hung together. Uh, but but whenever I first started started plotting the story, uh, we had a gigantic whiteboard that was one wall of our conference room. And so when I first went into uh, into the conference room, I just you know kind of drew a huge grid on the on the on the conference board and said, okay, here are the bisectors, here are the planets, and said, okay, this is this planet, and what's this this what's this kind of episode? I said, okay, the crew gets shrunk down to the size of you know answer something and so uh so uh, i had the each one of the episode was very much like think about an episode of star trek or whatever is all the different genre television shows you can think of that was kind of sci-fi and so this might be kind of like a voyage to the bottom of the sea episode this is buck rogers this is you know mm. all, all those classic science fiction shows are going on I, I was definitely kind of stealing ideas from in terms of okay they get shrunk they get sent back in time this is the you know and so I used all of those as kind of starting points for how uh, what those stories were going to be. I'm also, in addition to being a Star Trek person, I'm also a gigantic Whovian. Um, mm-hmm. And so who Doctor Who was was in there in terms of of kind of an influence on stuff. And so very episodic driven. And so every episode 
totally different things going on uh, and we all the different kind of races. So we got lizard people and we got turtle people and we've got robots and all this kind of crazy stuff. And so the, the beautiful thing about that particular game was, is that it was just totally free reign. Go where, wherever the hell you want to go. And and do whatever you want to do with this stuff. And so I really enjoyed that because it, it, it like each planet was like a little tiny episode of Star Trek. Um, and so uh, so that was a lot of fun. I really I really enjoyed Planet's Edge immensely. And I re- regret that, that one of the things about me leaving New World is I didn't get a chance to do a Planet's Edge 2 because we set up a, a se- we set it up so that there would be a sequel. But obviously the, the second one never got done. I mean, the game got um, really well received. I mean, I'm looking here at some of the reviews at the time. I mean, you know, a lot of four out of fives, 90 percent. It even got nominated for the Role Playing Game of the Year Award by Computer Gaming World, which, you know, being a young designer and a young writer in the industry, that must have really helped progress your career and give you a lot of credence, I imagine. Yeah, it it uh, it. Like I said, I was I I got really extraordinarily lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Because number one is, uh, of course, New World. Again, we had John Van Cannon, who was running the company. He was uh, very cool about letting me come in and ask questions and and uh, uh, work with him. He did have a tendency to to want to work more uh, on his own, and so I didn't really get to pick his brain as much as I probably probably should have because part part of it is i was a little shy and nervous about asking too much because i didn't want to seem like an idiot but at the same time too is is uh uh, john was kind of shy himself uh so i I wish in retrospect that i'd actually taken more time to get to know more about his process uh but something else that happened uh while we were working uh at at new world is that cinemaware folded now cinemaware of course made several really great games you know uh that you know they they had defender of the crown and they folded and we got a lot of cinemaware's talent at new world uh john cutter was one wasn't it john cutter was one of them uh john gwynn who was one of our artists on um on planet's edge uh we got um uh lewis johnson lewis johnson came from cinemaware and we got one or two other people from cinemaware and so when Cinemaware collapsed, we got all of these amazing people that, that came into the company. So as you said, I, uh, we got John Cutter. My relationship with John Cutter became really, really important, uh, as you know, we, we might chat about here in a minute or whatever. But uh, John came in and John became the producer for Planet's Edge whenever he got there, because we didn't really, you know, even though John jvc was running the whole company we didn't really have anybody kind of managing the whole the project as a whole and so john cutter came in and became our producer and he really liked my writing and he and i just had an Im- immediate simpatico with each other and we would talk about stuff and we really our our ideas kind of overlapped a great deal but john of course uh had done a really great game at uh cinemaware called wings uh, and th- one of the great things about Wings is Wings ha- uh, was, of course, a World War I flight simulator. Uh, but a lot of the story is told through journal entries. And that's going to become important on the next game that John and I worked on together. <laughs> well, um, I was going to say, um, you, you actually moved um, to Dynamics with John. And uh, uh, yes. you were both working on uh, the betrayal of... Uh, Crondor. So, yes. so what, what were the kind of influences behind that? And, uh, you know, uh, what, what ideas did you put in there? So, um, so with uh, Betrayal of Crondor, 
John moved about six months before I did. He had gotten an offer from from uh, Dynamics. Uh, and of course, he had wanted, there were some other projects he'd wanted to do that at New World, there just wasn't really time on the slate for them to be done. And John wanted a more more influence over what was going on. So he he had gotten an offer to go up to Dynamics, which is in Eugene, Oregon, which is a you know little at the time about a hundred thousand people uh, up in the middle of of the woods in, in Oregon. So uh, I before he left, I said, if anything ever opens up there, please let me know because I really have enjoyed working with you. And, and really, John became my mentor. Everything that I really know or understand about uh, game computing, I really first learned from John Cutter. Uh, because even though working, I worked a lot of stuff with, with JVC, Cutter is the first one that really kind of took me under his wing and said, here, this is how all this stuff works. So anyway, John called me up after he'd been up there. And the deal was is that Jeff Tunnell, who was the CEO of Dynamics, had read the novel Silverthorn by Raymond E. Feist, who you know is a big fantasy author. And uh, their original idea is that they wanted to take the novel Silverthorn and take, uh, turn it into a computer game. And they, so they brought me up for an interview to talk about this. And they, they asked me what I thought about it. And I said, I don't think that's the right idea. I said, I, I, you know, and so we're going to wrap back around to my being a Star Trek fan here is I said, my personal feeling is, is that if you have, if, if I'm someone who really, really enjoys, you know, uh, a, a movie or a book by somebody, uh, in some respects, I don't, I don't want, you know, for, in a gaming standpoint, I, I, I already kind of know what the end of the story is supposed to be. And so as a player, my, you know, so my, my choices as, as a designer is to make something that either is stuff that's happening in the background of the book or the movie that I know or I love, uh, and otherwise, why am I slapping the, the label on it? Because I'm not really doing anything that's associated with that original book or that movie. Or I have to change what the ending of the story is. And I go, at what point is why do I even call it the same name? Because I'm changing it substantially so the player is getting an opportunity to make new choices or make different choices or not feel like they're being kind of stuck in a cattle shoot to do that. I, I said, that's the wrong idea. So I, I sat down, I, I read all of the, the all of race books and said, what you want to do is, you know, we license, you know, Ray's universe and we, there's a, a book called the darkness that Seth and on. And then his next book after that is Prince of the blood, which is set 20 years afterward. And I said, there's a 20 year gap between the darkness that Seth and on and Prince of the blood. And I said, so let's create a new game that happens smack dab between the two. And so it'll be a brand new story, but we'll utilize his characters and utilize that universe. Um, and we'll, uh, so that way we have a new story that's set up there. And so, uh, so that's how we decided to kind of come up with, with the game that came Betrayal at Crondor was, was this brand new story set, uh, set in that 20 year gap. And when it came to deciding what the approach of it was going to be is that we spent a lot of time kicking the can around in terms of, of what the style of it would be. Would it be 2D, 3D, what have you? And one of the big things that the big immediate uh, you know, tent poles we had with this is I said, I like the idea. Uh, so since this is based on a novel, let's have every level you know, basically be a chapter and it opens with, a, with text and it ends with text. So just like reading uh, something from one of Ray's books. And 
I was also hugely influenced by what John had done on Wings because we had a lot of talks about I loved what he had done with the journals in Wings. And I said, let's let's take that same approach. Uh, and I think that it's a really great way to get us inside the heads of the characters and give us a lot of the kind of information that ordinarily you just couldn't get out of a game otherwise. Um, mm. And so and then we spread that out to, you know, uh, we had a 3D environment. Uh, which we achieved basically by taking the aces of the Pacific engine and put it on the ground, <laughs> um, which was complicated because, uh, you know, what aces wants to do is, is to avoid colliding with things. <laughs> uh, and so obviously, but we need to be able to walk and, and have uh, a different thing. So, so there was a lot of modifications that had to be made to the aces engine to put it on the ground so that we could walk around and explore the world. Um, I bet. <laughs> and we were trying, trying to be the first uh, true 3D engine on the ground, but we got beat by Ultima Underworlds, bastards. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, you, you should have heard the screaming in the offices that day. Um, <laughs> so we, so it was going to be a 3D engine. We like this, this storytelling narrative and making it very, very book-like. And so uh, rather than kind of having to create an interior for all the different buildings, we just said, you know, Trying to do that was going to eat up a lot of, of uh, memory and, and other stuff that we don't want to mess with. And so you would go and uh, go to a building, you knock on the building and you get here would be like a little tiny, you know, wad of text. And so as a result, Betrayal at Crondor had more text in it than the longest of Ray's novels. And so and so for a number of years, we had the benchmark of having more text and more story in it than than any other games of, of its era. Which is interesting because obviously Betrayal at Crondor was it was published by Sierra, who are known for you know a lot of text in their text adventure games yes. and their graphical adventures, and they didn't really have much of a background with RPG. I mean, what, did they have much demands in terms of direction, and was there a bit of a, a battle between their kind of adventure background and uh, making an RPG game that they were going to publish? Well, we whenever we talked about, and honestly, whenever you know, even though we get classified as an RPG, we really were a hybrid between an adventure game and an RPG yeah. uh, because, and that, and that's really how we pitched it to the heads at, at Sierra uh, was is saying that, you know, we're, we're definitely, we give you a set of characters that you're going to play with. Uh, it's, you know, you don't roll up your main characters or, or whatever you, we give you these characters and you are playing with them. So that's very much within the vibe of what Sierra had been doing. And so we, we said in this, this way, we're able to, you know, have a, a lot of control over what, what happens with the story. And that lets also lets us create certain events uh, and with, with different characters that you meet. And we have, in addition to our kind of book like intros, we also have the little tiny, not full motion video uh, sequences, but they're, they're kind of like cutscenes, but not really, you know, uh, that we had as in addition to the tech stuff. And I said a lot of that just would not have been possible if it had been something like Might and Magic, where you're just rolling up a completely random uh, character. And so there was a definite story going through the, through the game, definite story to all the different places that you're going to. So uh, so Sierra, I think, you know, Sierra's main concerns, obviously, was just that this game ended up being really big. Uh, and we were definitely over schedule. You know, we were we were over time and over budget. Then, because we were supposed to originally be 
I think it was like seven hundred, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars uh, for the budget, and I think we ended up costing about one point three million dollars. I think it was. The the good thing about it was is that they could see what we were doing, and you know they they were very happy with what where we were going because I I think that the best thing was is that in some respects is the people at, at Sierra could see uh, even though that we were over schedule over over budget. I think that they saw what what Cronder was going to be even before John and I could, because there were times when John and I were sitting in an office. Go, is anybody going to play this game? <laughs> <laughs> is, well, is any anybody going to, to to like this game or enjoy this game? Well, and, initially, uh, it, it didn't have huge sales, did it? But um, a CD-ROM kind of CD-ROM, came in and changed that. Yeah, well, it's CD-ROM. Really, we just went through the roof. I mean, our our reviews were great whenever we came out uh but the the whenever it first came out we were just we were doing okay but we weren't really doing great but it whenever it hit cd-rom the sales just went through the roof and of course part of that was is number one i'm not a hundred percent sure of this but i'm pretty sure this is true is i believe we were the first role-playing game on cd-rom um, mm. And of course, this is at a time whenever CD-ROMs were brand new. Everybody had had their, you know, okay, I got my new computer and it has a shiny uh, CD-ROM drive in it. Well, now I, I want to feed it something. <laughs> and so being one of the first role-playing games on CD-ROM definitely helped us. But because we got, we uh, got a lot more visibility and people found out about us and, uh, and then, then after that, you know, uh, I mean, the, the irony is in the long run, we were actually one of the best-selling games that Dynamics ever made. But it took us a while to get there. But, is is uh, that kind of why you guys didn't do the sequel? Because uh, I know that was Return to Crondor. Uh, uh, so, uh, okay, well, so... Have so, <laughs> so, I opened up a bag of worms? Uh, well, it, it the whole thing about the sequel was was kind of sad because we were actually actively, after we finished... Uh, betrayal at Crondor, I immediately rolled on to working on the sequel. And I I had the, the story written out. Uh, we ran it through, uh, ran it by Raymond D. Feist, who loved the story. He says, Neil, if you don't do this as a, uh, as a game, I'm going to do these as novels. <laughs> uh, and he kind of did later <laughs> but uh but anyway so we we're in development with it uh i uh had a great time working with the new lead artists that we had on the project uh, we had story boarded out the first three or four chapters worth of cutscenes and everything and so everything was going really well uh but the problem was is that the fact that we had cost more than they ex- had expected in the way that everything else they wanted to make the sequel smaller and cheaper and add to this is that they wanted every line of, of text that appeared on the screen to be read by someone so that, that all the dialogue and all of the, the on-screen text would have been performed by an actor so that, that, and, and we said, okay, do you understand how much text that is? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I said, you know, do you guys really are, do you understand is the fact that the budget you want to give us to make the game bang, you've already spent that in the recording booth. Because once you go down there and you get big Hollywood stars and everything to, to, to record all this dialogue, that's what it's going to cost you 
to record all of this text and all that dialogue. So that's number one, is that we can't possibly be cheaper if you do that. And the second thing is, is that they said, you just made a game that's become Computer Gaming World uh, Hall of Fame Game of the Year, actually several several other Game of the Year awards that we uh, we won for. It says, you, or we're going to take a game that won all these awards and that so that you get a sequel that's smaller and cheaper. We you and in or, and the only way we can do this is if we don't really create any new assets. So no new buildings, no new monsters. We basically just go in, reskin everything so that it's like okay, same characters, different dialogue, same areas, but new dialogue. He said, "There's no way that fans are going to." They're going to forgive us. So you say that basically we're going to take the uh, take something that is valuable to us and we're going to throw it away. The fans are going to be pissed off. So John tried to make this case to the head of the company, Tony Rinke, and Tony fired him. And so they took the rest of my team and they started, you know, giving them to other to other departments. And then they started to notice the fact, oh, you know, this is starting to sell really well. But unfortunately, by the point my team is broken up and they come back to me and said, can you do you want to do uh, to be the the new lead of the game? You would be, you know, John's old jobs that you'd be doing your job and John's job. And can you produce whatever? And I said, uh, I, I, I don't think we can do it because, uh, again, with the you want us to do it in the, like half the time and the third of the budget or whatever it was. I, I don't think that this is possible. And I said, but I'm going to talk to one of the, some of the other developers who are at Dynamics and ask them what they think about it. Cause obviously they have the experience. They can look at the, the numbers and everything else and see if this is doable. So I ran it by one of them and they came back to me and said, Neil, I couldn't do this. And I have, you know, several more years experience in doing this. There's no way that I could, I could do this and you're not crazy. So there was this crazy thing where I, before I had a chance to go tell, tell Tony, know that I, I, that, that this wasn't going to be possible. Uh, we'd had this big team uh, or big company meeting where he, uh, where they were kind of talking about here's the state of the company and yay hurrah all these great stuff's going on and oh by the way Neil's going to be the new be leading the sequel to Betrayal at Crondor and I'm just sitting in the back and go oh my god you're just making me feel like a gigantic asshole <laughs> uh, <A> nightmare <laughs> and I said I really wish you would have waited until we had this discussion about where were things were going to go but anyway uh, but I resigned. So once Ray found out that the sequel had been canceled and that John had been let go, uh, he yanked the license and says, OK, well, uh, I'm I'm pulling the license because uh, you guys aren't don't seem to be you're not going to be using the same team and everything else. So he yanked the license. So about eight months later, six months later, something like that, I get a call from Ray and says, hey, there's we got a new company that wants to develop uh, a, a sequel and you want to come meet with them. And so that that game became returned to Crondor. But by that time, I'd moved back to Oklahoma to be near my dad because my dad had 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 cancer and I wanted to be near him. Um, mm. And um, so I said, well, I, I'd be willing to do this, but I have to do it long distance. But long story short is the company they hired to do it didn't really have any experience with making role playing games and really had, didn't have an engine of any kind. They were telling me, well, we'll have this done in in eight months or something. I said, you won't, you'd be lucky to have it done in 18 months. You don't even have an engine, <laughs> a 3d engine. You don't have a team. None of the people you're working with have any experience in working with something. I said, role-playing games are the biggest, most complex kind of game out there. And I will stand by that 
<laughs> I still stand by that notion is that role-playing games Absolutely. Are, are, are the most complex things to try to design and engineer than any other thing else because there's so many different variables uh, that other games don't necessarily have to deal with. And so anyway, uh, we worked together for about five, five months, six months, and then we just decided, realized that that wasn't going to work. And so the month, the game that they thought that they were going to ship in eight months. So this was the end of 1994 and they shipped it in 1998, 97, 98. And that that was after that company initially folding and this property being sold to somebody else. um, And that company eventually got absorbed by Sierra. And so (laughs) around the house, around the house (laughs) and just all kinds of terrible things happened. The guy who'd been the the project manager at the first company uh, actually had a heart attack. Uh, uh, He survived, but, Uh, but just, it it had all of these gigantic kind of things that went wrong with it. Uh, And then in addition to that, Sierra had right after Betrayal at Croner got, got canceled. And after I walked away, they decided to make another game called Betrayal at Antara, which had nothing to do with Betrayal at Ant- uh, with with Crondor, other than it kind of used our old engine. <laughs> totally different approach to the art. No, you know, none of the same. You know, none of the original team members were associated with it. So it had two sequels, kind of. So there was Antara, which was a kind of sequel, and then Return to Crondor, which was sort of a sequel, uh, but they couldn't they couldn't really use the plot line we were going to use for Thief of Dreams, and it couldn't really use the, the two main characters I would created for the first one. Um, so anyway, <laughs> you know, some, sometimes it's a shame that our podcast isn't two hours yeah, long. I'm sorry. I feel like we're barely scratching the surface, Neil. It's like, honestly, it's so interesting this, but we really need to talk yes. about as well. Dungeon siege. Cause I know there's fans out there that want to hear about dungeon siege as well. So sure. and, and I know you did move with, um, with Chris Taylor to, um, gas powered games. How did you get involved with, um, with Chris then and, and gas powered and what, what was his approach like to, to making games? So I will, so, so we have a, a small detour really quick is that, so John Cutter ended up at cave dog and cave dog was, uh, was the, uh, they were making a game uh, that John and I work on a game called Elysium, which unfortunately also never shipped, <laughs> um, because the company collapsed, but the one, one comp- game that did ship from the company before they collapsed was of course, total annihilation which is where I met Chris Taylor. And uh, I actually even did some stuff for him that uh, writing up some like game story stuff for him for, for total annihilation. But anyhow, so that's how, how Chris Taylor and I got to know each other. So whenever he moved over and started his new company, gas powered games, uh, he gave me a call uh, and said, Hey, Neil, I'm working on, uh, on a new title uh, called dungeon siege. And I'd like to come, have you come up and talk to us about developing story for it. As opposed to the process whenever I was working on Betrayal at Crondor, where I was there basically from day one uh, in putting it together, with Dungeon Siege, uh, what Chris had Chris had some had a few kind of stakes in the ground in terms of things he wanted to happen with the story. They'd already built m- multiple levels for the game, and the the approach that that we did with Dungeon Siege was I have all these levels this is kind I want them to go from here to here to here to here to here I need you to explain why the hell this all this stuff happens which sometimes it was a little bit of a challenge because like oh my god <laughs> how do I how do I make this stuff make sense in terms of threading the needle with all of these things but the great thing about it was is Chris uh, you know my my best bosses are the ones that basically take their hands off and let me just do my job. And Chris was definitely much that in that case, he says, you're the writer. Um, I want to let you go on this stuff. And so I proceeded to write this gigantic uh, Bible for the world uh, that we did for Dungeon Siege. 
that kind of uh, came up all the different stories. So here's the back history. And there's a bunch of stuff that you never even saw in the games, which uh, unfortunately, uh, and then some, sometimes later on on the games that I didn't have direct contact with, they kind of dived into that and kind of took some of the stuff out, out of it and made it way out of context and kind of, kind of broke the storyline. But I had developed this, this, this big Bible and I wrote the story and the dialogue for, for it. But, um, but I really liked working with Chris and working for all the people at, at, uh, at Gaspar games, because again, they were, uh, all really great people, uh, to, to work with. And, uh, it was, it was, like I said, it was a different kind of approach because it's like, here's all this different stuff and figure out why this is all associated with it. What are the, what are the narrative links that make this stuff kind of hang together? So, and uh, the technology as well with that company was like, oh, it was really, you know, you know, the TA uh, with Total Annihilation was a huge game with loads of things going on on screen and Dungeon Siege had like a seamless world and, uh, the, the ability to mod it and, uh, you know, was it kind of really popular and was it also seen as like a bit of a alternative against uh, Diablo at the time? Well, I think that the one thing that is uh, a defining characteristic of, of Chris Taylor, Chris is always about how do I push the envelope technologically, uh, come up with a game mechanic nobody has ever seen before. And so that's the one thing that defines Chris's games is that he is always out there, push the limit, push the limit, push the limit. He is not someone that basically just puts new wheels on an old car. Most of that didn't really touch the stuff that I did in terms of it didn't really impact the story that much. Uh, it did make it, in some respects, it was kind of exciting because, you know, the fact that it was a seamless world, you didn't really have this notion of a low, you know, when we were doing Crondo, we've done other games. It's a natural place to kind of have a chapter opening and closing is because you're opening, a, you're starting a level and ending a level. And with his world, you don't necessarily have those as kind of organic breaks, you know, because it's like the stories go, the world just goes on and on and on and on. I, I think that, that a lots of people saw it as just from a technological standpoint was a really exciting kind of game. I, I didn't get it as much love for the storytelling, but it was a different kind of storytelling than I had done on, on Betrayal at Crondor. It's much, much stripped down, very minimalist kind of dialogue, dialogue and, and that kind of stuff. But um, the, I know that the one thing that, that we kind of took a hit with on, on uh, Dungeon Siege is that people were kind of concerned about the development of tank mages, you know, uh, is there's a lot less, a lot of people who are used to a certain way of playing an RPG just really kind of felt like there just wasn't enough differentiation event uh, between different kinds of characters. You know, they all sort of became the same mushy thing. And I, I can get where they're, they're coming from with that. I, I personally loved the gameplay in, in Dungeon Siege. I really enjoyed the fact that I could kind of go wh wherever I wanted to with the characters. But anyway, we but we still did 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 great. I mean, I uh, I have I still have my you know was it two million copies or whatever gold discs hanging on my wall back here from that. <laughs> uh, oh, nice. <laughs> um, that's still probably the best selling game I ever worked on was Dungeon Siege. I think. And so, anyway, I, I, I enjoyed it immensely. And again, I, I really love working with, with the folks at, uh, at Gas Powered Games. Uh, I came back and worked with Chris on uh, Supreme Commander, but I wasn't mm. uh, didn't work on it as long as possible. I basically had a situation where my wife had some health issues and I needed to kind of step away for a while. Um, right. And so Chris and I have continued to kind of, you know, uh, 
talk about stuff. I came in for a little while to kind of help them with promotion for Wild Man, which unfortunately didn't ended up getting funded on Kickstarter, but uh, that was kind of fun promotion. It was kind of a cool idea. And he's got his new game that he's working on right now. And uh, if they, whenever they get further on down the road, I'll probably actually be writing the story and, and text for his new, his new uh, space strategy game. Amazing. So, um, uh, but he's, he's kind of doing that part-time. He's, he's kind of semi-retired now, but he's doing his, his spare time. But I love Chris to death. And so, you know, uh, along with John, he's one of my, my favorite you know, people to work for, because again, he just kind of trusts, he knows what I, what he does. And he hires me to do a specific kind of work and he just stands back and lets me do it. Over the years, I have helped worn every single hat there is in the, the design department. So I have been the program manager, lead designer, level designer, all of that stuff over the years. Uh, partially just simply because when I got started that those distinctions didn't even exist. So you did whatever needed to be done at the time. Uh, But, but these days I I'm pretty much content to just be the narrative designer. So let me write the story and and come up with the world and all that kind of stuff. And I'll let the the rest of you people do your thing because uh, I'm an old man now and I don't want to sleep under my desk. (laughs) And (laughs) those days are gone. Those days are gone. I'm I'm just, nope, nope. You just, you don't have enough money to pay me to do that anymore. Nope. Sorry. (laughs) Well, Neil, what, what are you up to these days? And is there anything we should look at that for soon? From so, you? ironically, um, uh, after you know, I'll say so. These days, I, I I do kind of freelance work. I'm actually doing some stuff right now for Amazon uh, for the uh, for uh, one of their their game studios. Um, can't really talk too much more about it, other than the fact that I'm working for them right now. In the meantime, most of my my private time is I got into in independent filmmaking uh, back in about ten years ago. And so I've been working on on various different kind of little projects. Uh, I have a little uh, noir horror film called The Case of Evil. You can check that out on on Amazon Prime if if you want to check that out. Um, and but I, ironically, the the big thing I'm working on these days is I am the producer of an audio drama series called The Uncharted Regions, which when I've wrapped back around to where I started whenever I I was working in radio is I kind of took oh, nice. the the concept of the original series that we were doing back in the 80s and we started making it again, except with uh, real actors as opposed to just a couple of my friends <laughs> and. You know, we we're really lucky. We've had a couple of really great stars come in and and work on episodes. I had uh, John Billingsley, who was Doctor Flox on Star Trek Enterprise. I uh, had Gigi Edgeley, who was on uh, Chiana on Farscape. Um, and uh, we have some other people kind of lined up working for us. Uh, got a friend of mine who is a writer uh, who was a showrunner for The Librarians, and he was the showrunner for. Um, the animated uh, Black Panther series. Uh, he wrote a script for us, and so we'll be doing recording his episode sometime soon. But anyway, I've been working on producing this this audio drama series, and so uh, we've only done kind of previews uh, at a few conventions, and so we're gonna. I'm hoping to get the first season all done, like 13 episodes. Uh, so our plan, uh, the next big thing on my plate is obviously get the Uncharted Region series kind of wrapped up and and out the door. Uh, if, if you like Twilight Zone uh, kinds of stuff, it's basically in that genre of, of kind of spooky or weird or kind of stuff. And so half hour uh, radio drama shows. 
Uh, so that's, that's, and, uh, the other thing too, is I'm, I'm writing a novel right now. <laughs> that's kind of going to be one of those things that sort of happens as I get to it or whatever, because it's, it's something that I've been kind of working on in the background for a long time, but, uh, it's going to be a long time before I get that done sadly, but, but it's, I, I just want to make sure that my first novel is what I want it to be. I was going to say, Neil, are you sure you're not sleeping under your desk? It sounds like you're very busy. Still. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, 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 I am never bored. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and so, and you know, people kind of have a tendency sometimes to say, "Well, you're you're a game." I had you know another game designer says, "You know, uh, I, I don't really know what to do with you because I don't know if I could hire you because you know because you just seem to be all over the place." And I said, "I said." I said I'm not really all over the place. It says, if you look at me in the context of I'm a storyteller, uh, mm. that's, you know, <laughs> that's, that's who I am is, is that I tell stories, I tell them in multiple genres and it's just a matter of figuring out what story does best in what, what format. This is best as a novel. This is best at a rate as a radio drama. This is best as a film. I'd love to do a comic book. Uh, but, uh, uh, I, I haven't found the, the artist yet uh, to do, do something. But Well, Neil, it, it's amazing to hear that that passion for storytelling still shines strong within you. And it's, uh, it's been incredible to reminisce with you over the last hour or so. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your stories with us. Well, thank, thanks so much for, for inviting me and, and having me there. Uh, and uh, I just want to say, too, is that uh, a big love for me for, for the UK. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge, I'm a huge Anglophile. And so, uh, um, my wife and I actually just went up to Canada a few weeks ago and I go, Oh my God, I feel like I'm in Europe. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so, uh, but I, I love, I love my, my UK fans deeply. So it's, it's, I'm glad to have you guys, uh, broadcasting over there. <laughs>